Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. I'm Cam Sackett. And I'm Caden Damiano. Welcome to Pivot, a podcast to learn about how designers solve problems. You'll hear from industry leaders about their beginning stories, when and how they pivoted into design, and what we can do to be better human-centered designers. This episode is packed full of a lot of good stuff. We had an excellent conversation with J.B. Chikowski, design manager at Intuit. We talked about giving and receiving feedback, finding your voice in design, solving the right problem, becoming design leaders, and so much more. Hello, hello. How you doing? I am doing well. Uh, crazy day, but uh, I survived and I'm here to have a wonderful conversation. So things are going really great. Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time to uh, meet with us. We can tell you're pretty busy. More yeah, personal so- more personal life than the professional life, but... Uh, Yes, busy, but uh, ha- happy to be here and to just discuss design, my favorite subject. All right, cool. So would you like to tell the audience, kind of give them an intro on your, your path into design and your story? Sure. Yeah, the five-minute version or less than that? As much five as minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or five minutes. Whatever. I mean, you're, you're the designer. Okay. What, what's the proper message? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, I'll just I'll just give a quick bio. So I grew up in West Virginia, and um, surprisingly, uh, West Virginia does not uh, have a lot of tech jobs, uh, technology-driven jobs. But my dad happened to have one, and he worked at a newspaper, and he was a IT guy uh, back then called data processing manager, and uh, basically, um, I had drawn for a long, long time. And then I saw these guys in his office using Photoshop. This is like way back. Yeah. Um, and I just got enamored with technology. And I can remember sitting in his office using QuickTime and making terrible supercuts of James Bond uh, trailers. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is in like 1996. So like technology has always been a part of my life because of my dad. And then um, when I went to school i just happened uh like in high school uh, i happened to have an amazing art teacher who bought a windows machine with photoshop on it purely because i showed interest in it huh. and wow. her, her name was mrs goffenbaugh and i will never forget 
that because she basically set me up to get a scholarship at a small liberal arts college, West Virginia Wesleyan, um, where I was the first student to ever have a laptop and show a portfolio on a laptop. So that was in the year 1999. And so, you know, I got the scholarship. I was super amped. And um, I'll be honest, I wasn't exactly the best student in college until I uh, until some situations occurred where I started really focusing on um, my design. And then I got out of school and I realized that the college I went to uh, did not prepare me <laughs> for, <laughs> for, the, for the web. And so I came out with like two years of awesome, like hand skills, painting, you know, drawing, that type of stuff. That was the first two years. And then the second two years was all immersion in graphic design as in, you know, typography, those types of things, which are great skills to have. But the market wasn't really jumping on that. They were jumping on web design. And I had no experience doing that in school. And so um, I did I did what any designer would do. And I took the first job out of school that I could. Um, and I started working in environmental graphic design. Um, and I worked for a firm in Pittsburgh. I cut my teeth there. But I couldn't move out of my parents' house because I wasn't paid enough. And, uh, that bothered me like in, um, West Virginia, like it's a hard, uh, it's a hardworking state and, um, you want to be able to make ends meet on your own terms. So I literally blanketed the United States with my resume. I got a job at HKS, um, still to be seen why <laughs> again, it's like, there's these constant, like, there's these people that, like, take chances. Um, and maybe it was, like, you know, talking to me on the phone or something. Never really got a clear answer because I can tell you right now my portfolio was hella terrible. And um, uh, so they offered me a position. I moved to Dallas. And I've been in Dallas since 2005. And um, so I worked in architecture for seven years. I got uh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, this this is an architecture job you came up with? Well, it was uh, it was wayfinding um, a branded environments. But oh, okay. you, know, you know what was cool is that HKS had like this um, group called Brand Space. And I was in the environmental graphic design group, which is like a separate group. But Trip Boswell, who um, I think more now than ever, I think I didn't understand at the time what like leadership really was or giving people opportunity really was at the time when I was younger. Um, but he put me in positions to, to win basically. And, um, I was able to work on like Dodger stadium and, uh, salt river fields, things that, um, you know, I was able to get a really deep expertise with and work side by side with the architects. So like signage just wasn't tacked on a wall. It was literally like thought about in conjunction with the architecture. So um, this give and take, because like, here's the thing, no matter what you're going to put numbers on a building because fire code tells you that the numbers have to be on the building. Right. So would you rather, <laughs> would you rather like me put just numbers on your building or would you rather work with me to put numbers on the building in a cool way on, on your on your building that you know is like a testament to your design, right? So, um, uh, but I, I did work like it was cool. I did branded environments. I did like sports coll collegiate recruiting work and uh, worked on some NFL stadiums, things like that. Uh, yeah, it was super awesome. Um, didn't really respect it as much as I respect it now, part, partially because the grass is always greener, right? Um, and then around 2007, no, 2000, yeah, around 2007, like, you know, the iPhone comes out three years into that, like, I just could feel the, the earth begin to move, right? Like the app store had come out. Uh, it was pandemonium, basically. Like technology was just like, it just went up this curve that it, I had never seen, at least or observed in a way that I was cognizant of in my lifetime. And 
um, I started thinking really deeply about changing careers and I was able to use the work in architecture um, to put myself in a position at Bottle Rocket Studios, which happens to be in Dallas as well, which at the time, and I would still say today, is probably the best um, consulting. Uh, back then, it was only native apps. So we would build iOS and Android apps. And then I moved into it because I wanted to work on products longer than like three months because um, yeah. Bottle, Bottle Rocket was like consulting and you're just switching things every three months, which was awesome at the beginning. And then there's a point where at least I got to the point where I felt um, I needed to put time and effort into understanding what it would take to build these things because um, apps were becoming part of our lives. They weren't marketing um, and how, how could I learn to be a better designer and into it gives me the, all those opportunities still to this day. So that's kind of the, the professional line. I can just always tell you that I've been interested in art and design and solving problems like since I was a kid. So, uh, I've been able to do that and turn that into a career. And I'm very thankful for that opportunity and the people that gave me these opportunities like Miss Goffinball, uh, you know, trip. Uh, James, my boss today, um, without them, like, uh, you know, I, w I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you probably. So JB and I, we met through LinkedIn. You posted something on LinkedIn about doing one-on-ones yeah. with uh, designers. What brought that about? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so this is like the vulnerable part. And um, the biggest lesson I've learned in the last 18, two year, 18 months, two years Um. So I thought things were going swimmingly. I'm, I manage a team of seven here in uh, Dallas for Intuit for our ProTax group, which is like tax accounting software. Um, and I thought things were going really well. And then I started feeling something from my team that may be like, um, I don't know, just a weird feeling, right? Uh, like I'd walk up at lunch and, you know, the conversation would change or the energy would change. So, um, you know, when, when I feel those things, um, I immediately start going for answers. And so I just sent them an anonymous survey like, hey, um, I want your feedback. What, what happened was I was so focused on the, I, I basically lost track of my team uh, for, for no fault of like trying to help them, you know, like in retrospect, like I'm not like, I can't say that I did anything completely wrong, except um, I, I wasn't there when they needed me to be. And so I got all this negative feedback, like probably some of the most heart-wrenching feedback I ever got. And um, I realized that I had to get back to basics. Like a good football team, you block, you tackle, you know, those are the things that are going to make you win games. Because if you don't do those things, you're, <laughs> you're doomed, right? right? So I was like, I need to get back to basics. And one of the things that I've learned is to ask questions and uh, try to understand situations. Um, and I kind of lost that and I was making a lot of assumptions in what I was doing. And so I wanted to get fidelity and I wanted to get repetition in coaching again. So continually coaching. And so I started doing one-on-ones. Uh, this was like in September, maybe September, or August, maybe September. Yeah. And I've done 43 one-on-ones with 40, like I've done more than 43, but 43 one-on-ones with, I think, 38 people in that time period, ranging from like leathersmiths to students to people that are like professors looking to like leave <laughs> and not be professors anymore, you know, and, uh, and other leaders have reached out to me from some large companies. It was, it's been an awesome experience. But I did it because of two things. The one is that you don't get better unless you do something over and over again. And I needed to, I needed to get back to coaching and to hone my coaching skills. And I feel like sometimes we take people for granted. And I maybe was taking my team a little for granted and just being like, oh, that's them, which is a terrible excuse because – you know, you could, you know, like, the, oh, they're having a bad day. Well, like, you should still ask questions about that bad day. And I just wasn't doing that. And so by getting this repetition of almost every day having one-on-ones, whether they were in the morning with people like 
UCAM yeah. or uh, with other individuals at Intuit. Like I've met other designers through Intuit because I've just opened myself up to be like, I'll talk and listen and whatever you want me to do, I'll be that person. So it comes down to like making myself a better leader and trying to give people what I never had uh, for parts of my career, specifically my first job. And I think we need to give more help to young designers because I think um, a lot of them are, are a little bit lost on, uh, you know, what, what it is like a professional environment is going to bring to them and stuff. So it's been helpful to me and I'm happy to report that it seems to be helpful for others. I can totally attest to that. The experience talking with you has been super valuable. And I honestly think it's a really great leadership quality that you possess to be able to take feedback and and apply it and then do something like these one-on-ones to even further your practice and training of it, which kind of is a good segue into some of the things we wanted to talk about today. You know, the importance of feedback and and failing and making mistakes and, and learning from those mistakes, right? Or, or, or that feedback. Do you have any examples there at Intuit of, I mean, you've kind of explained your feedback as a manager, right? Yep. What about some feedback to your team and other designers? How can we, you know, receive feedback and apply it effectively? Yeah, I think there's uh, the first thing, um, and I'll, and I'll give that this to my school, or at least the, you know, the, uh, the thank you to my school that we had really, really hard critiques, like people crying critiques. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea was that you had to stand by your work, right? You had to have reasons why you were doing things. And I can remember, um, there's a young woman in my, one of my classes and she had just done something because she liked the color and like, man, we just, we, we <laughs> tore our part. Right. But, you know, looking back, I'm like, man, that was so, it, well, I don't know why we did that, you know? And so one of the things I learned was like to disassociate my solutions, right. With me as a person, like taking offense for somebody's critique of my work was not critiquing me. And what I've observed from some younger designers is that they do feel personally attacked, or at least it feels like they feel like they're personally attacked when they get feedback. So that's one, one thing that I would caution everybody. Like it's not a, even if somebody's being mean spirited, which there will be mean spirited people that you'll run into, right? You just got to smile and be like, you have to, you have to accept the feedback and you have to rationalize the feedback. And if you still don't believe that feedback, so be it. It's your work. <laughs> so, you know, um, and, and we talk and we talk to our designers here at Intuit that way, like everything's an input. It's for you to balance, like whether it's me or like the director of design here at, uh, at our location here in uh, Plano and Dallas, like James, it's just another input for you to consider. Ultimately, you, you're autonomous. You make the decisions for the design in your team. And you, you have to own those decisions and own the outcomes. And if the outcome occurs, then you're right. High five. Uh, if the outcome doesn't occur, why didn't it occur? And let's move on and try to make it occur. So don't take things personally and own the outcomes are two of the biggest pieces of feedback that I give young designers today. Okay. So from what you're saying, it sounds like you said that, it, the feedback is yours to bounce. So mm-hmm. you could receive feedback and just be like, okay, well, I stand by this decision nonetheless. And that means yeah. like uh, owning the outcome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and I've had that happen. Sometimes you have to let people, you know, fail in a controlled way. Right. And you have to be like, okay, cool. That's, and, and you also have to look in, inwardly. Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around here, but you have to look inwardly. So like if I give somebody feedback, um, or if like a director of design gives somebody feedback, they might jump at that. They might just go do that thing. And that's not a good way to create design either. Just because somebody told you to go do something. Right. <laughs> like, I think people do that with customers all the time. Well, they want the button bigger, make the button bigger. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so if I give somebody feedback, I have to be cognizant that they might just jump and do it. And so I'd rather have a conversation about, what, what evidence did they have? Do they have any evidence? Is this a hypothesis that we're going to go test? How are we going to test it? Uh, are we testing the right thing? And then that's where the debate can occur versus, right. you know, like, okay, we don't know. I have an opinion. You have an opinion. Let's go 
let's go prove ourselves right or wrong, which makes designers uncomfortable, right? You know, like, um, let's just go test it and we might be wrong. It's better than let's go build this thing for, you know, millions of dollars and ship it and it fails. And I've been on that side of the thing too. And it doesn't feel good either. Yeah. So that get that really gets me thinking that, well, no, I've seen the same thing. Like the CEO will be like, well, what if we did this? And then like the, the PM will be like, okay guys, we have to do this. And, and um, I mean, I guess like between like designers. So I actually was just reading this uh, book about comic books. It's called understanding comics. Yeah. I love that book. Yeah. It's awesome. Oh yeah. So, okay. You remember that part where he talks about kind of like the, the different layers of like a craft. So you know, the easiest, most appreciated part of any work of art is the surface. But sometimes people avoid to pay attention to the craft. Um, what you're saying about instead of questioning the surface as like a, a manager or like someone that's giving a critique, it's it's more about worrying about the principles of design that they're using and then just spot checking and seeing if they, they, totally. they have like well-reasoned use of uh, structure and pacing and and uh like layout um that there if the reasoning is sound then you're like oh okay well go ahead but yeah yeah 100 percent agree yeah and because if, if you're working at a large company like i do or google or facebook or even you know like airbnb whatever company i would say mid-sized to large you're probably going to have a design system right and so a lot of your design, visual design, um, uh, a lot of it is already pre-planned. And then you pick the moments that matter and you attack those, right? So, like, talking about button size and color and stuff like that, like, it doesn't it doesn't create uh, the type of conversation that I believe leaders should be having. I think there's, like, a you should be discussing layout and those types of things, but it shouldn't be about you know, this layout, it should be like, how did you arrive at this layout? Yeah. And is there somebody else doing it so that we don't have to go and make all the same mistakes they did before doing it? Uh, But I 100% agree. We have to get to a place where we debate the idea, not the execution of the idea. And then we can debate the execution because if we all agree on the data that's making this thing occur, then, then we can have a better discussion about, well, how do we actualize the solution you know totally yeah um so that's a big takeaway for me is we should be debating the idea and i feel like a lot of well i mean at least in our cohort that's that's kind of like the next level i feel like that's where you jump from junior to Mm -hmm. mid-level designer is that you start worrying more about kind of like the ethos of a a product rather than just kind of like the visual treatment well i i would say that um if i could just interrupt one second like yeah i would say it's everybody's job because if if you're in a super hierarchical situation maybe you're like okay i'm gonna you know learn (laughs) or whatever like but i would hope that a junior designer can have just a deeper conversation about the brand as a senior designer and discuss it in the same terms and have a debate about it because you just never know whose idea like the idea that uh, Diego Rodriguez, who's our um, kind of our chief design and product officer, he told this story about how uh, they they were working with a nail care company at uh, IDEO, and and the guy that came up with the solution was this old man who had nothing to do with nails. He had no clue what nails were about, <laughs> but he. He was like, I don't even, like, he just created, he basically was like a craftsman who used a lot of tools, and then he created a new tool that anybody could use left or right-handed, right? And in the meeting with uh, prototyping, and there were all these experts on nail care in the room, and there was the dude that wasn't a nail care expert that, you know, changed the trajectory of that particular work for Diego and his team, right? And we shouldn't care where the idea comes from. We should care about the validity and the power of the idea because you never know who's going to just say random thing. That's just going to spark the next solution. 
that's going to take your product to the next level. Wow. That's some heavy stuff. Actually, we've been <laughs> that that like we've noticed that a lot of uh, a lot of our like podcast interviews we get get really in the weeds of like the the, yeah. the design philosophies, and we're, we should just be like the mushy podcast instead of. I know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's like if you're talking to people that have been around a while, they felt the burn of you know, talking about pixels. It, it, and I want to be very clear that like, we still care about those things. Like right. we still care about four pixel, eight pixel grids and, you know, like all that stuff. But if you, if you have the right tool set, a lot of that stuff takes care of itself now. So like whether you're creating like react styled components where the code and the visuals are all connected, like all of a sudden, like you've, you've dealt with two problems already <laughs> and created one package that, anybody can pick up and build stuff with right but if we're going to get like tactical it's just really hard to have conversations about tactical stuff because there are so many variables like talking to these 43 you know one-on-ones every single person has similar issues but the tactics to solve those issues vary widely we'll just say yeah yeah so i'm actually going to kind of move the conversation a little bit more towards how do you execute those tactics? I I agree with you. Like everything is debatable in design. There's like plenty of ways to Mm -hmm. skin a cat. There's so many business variables, market variables, but man, like I didn't know, like I was going to get so much value out of a book about comics, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the, 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 the understanding comics book, uh, it really brings out like, okay, so, there's like six levels to a craft, you know, like mm-hmm. one, there's the idea Two, there's the form, which is kind of like the medium that you execute the idea on three. It's the idiom, which is like a person's voice. It's their style. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, there's structure and then there's uh, craft and, and surface and surface mm-hmm. is like those people that like go on dribble and they're like, Hey, look, I could design like the best dribble designs. And then craft is like these really good, like production designers that know how to use mm-hmm. all the tools and and structure is kind of like where you start getting into more of like the nuance of, of the craft itself understanding like hicks law stuff like that like design yeah. principles and then idiom is when the, the person when the designer or like any creative person in the craft decides like hey i'm tired i'm tired of how everyone else is doing things or the way that this company is approaching problems isn't, I feel like they're doing the same thing over and over again. And then they come up mm-hmm. with their own style and you know that you have your own style because people start to mimic you. Mm-hmm. I, I want to like start there, but then go a little mm-hmm. bit deeper, like, because eventually after that you get into form and ideas and then you start asking, why do we do these things? Why are we mm-hmm. using a website? Why are we using an app? But I guess I want to start like idiom. How, mm-hmm. how do you find your voice as a designer? So that oh, yeah. you could you could inform your tactical uh, decision making. Yeah. Oh wow, that's a. Uh, you guys talk about deep questions, man. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm in the school of thought that you cannot divorce your personal point of view from design. What you can do is just channel it. So an example is like here at Intuit, we have very specific company values and things that we're trying to accomplish, I'm not going to remove, there's absolutely just no way for me to remove my point of view of how something in the world should be. Um, And it's part of the reason that I actually uh, went into it is that I wanted to solve real problems with quotation marks because, you know, I had worked, you know, in sports and entertainment and, you know, I worked with some large scale beverage companies that you could probably just start naming. But there's a point where it's like, well, all I'm doing is like marketing. And I had a point of view that I wanted to make tech poetic. And what that means to me is like be more human and be more expressive with the medium. And, you know, it's hard to do that as a manager because you're trying to channel other people's passions (laughs) into Mm. things. But I still try to do that to this day. I think that there, if, if we're going to talk about the idiom, you know, moving from like, I know the thing to I've mastered the thing and now I can break the rules and stuff. That, that's what I remember it kind of being like, right? Is that yeah. correct? Yeah that's, yeah, that's exactly it. I think the problem, the problem right now is that we just, uh, there are too many rules. Like we have the HIG and material design and 
everybody's just following those. Yeah, so the, that's good, what the good word of Apple. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and they, they used to be way more strict. Like previous to iOS 7, they were like super strict. And then they became a little bit more open. But people just use the known affordances as a kind of a, uh, a hitch right now that, that hey, I'm going to go do this thing. But I think you can't remove yourself from your work. I would ask nobody to remove themselves from your work because if you value what you're doing and you have values that you're trying to impose on the world, then you should do those things. And I can remember in the early 2000s, there being this explosion of design objects that uh, Philippe Stark and others created that were singular visions of what they wanted the world to be like. Right. Whether it's the Alessi juicer or those types of objects. And I think we're kind of missing that. And I, I actually uh, long for the days of MySpace uh, <laughs> gifts and backgrounds and things like that, because I feel like we've lost a little bit of our expressiveness to these systems that we've put in place. So I, I, I would. I would challenge any designer right now to bring their values and their point of view of how the world should be. Find a company that matches those things and make it go happen for yourself. Right. Totally. I don't know if that answered your question, but <laughs> no, that well, I, no, that, like it, that makes me think that when you're assessing your fit in a company and Cam and I have been talking about this a lot, we were just in New York last week and we were like grilling. So we went like the NFL headquarters, <laughs> we went to, uh, went to IBM, we went to uh, BBH and huge and at every mm-hmm. place we asked them, okay, like from what we understand on paper, a lot of applicants for product design jobs look the same. Like they all kind of have a similar process. They all, they all mm-hmm. have similar work. So at that point, it's more about cultural fit. And so, yep. yeah, so I'm wondering like if that's like a key to assessing or like auditing, if you have a fit with a company is do their values and point of view match yours? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Like, the, the first things I do when I see an applicant, the first thing I look at is like, is it visually okay? It doesn't have to be visually perfect. And, and the reason I say visually okay is because sometimes product designers or interaction designers aren't being taught visuals in school. They're being taught like human heuristics and, you know, uh, uh, flows and service design, those types of things. And so they don't always have a visual spin to their work or like something where I could say that's beautiful. Right. But Mm. it's also stupid easy to get a Squarespace page or make your stuff look nice. And if your stuff doesn't look nice and uh, like it's immediate turnoff because it means that there are specific details that you just don't care about. And one of the details that you don't still care about is it looking nice. And so that's the first thing I, I can make that just, I can discern that within a minute one thing and I'll move on. And the person could be brilliant, but they've already not checked a box that I need for my particular team. A different hiring manager in the same company could stay there and hire the person. But for my particular team, I need somebody that's more full stack designer, right? Right. And the second thing I look for is can they articulate a true problem that's coming from a customer perspective and not a business perspective? Um, The reason is because most colleges give you business problems. But most companies are trying to solve customer problems, at least now. Like the companies that I would work for try to solve customer problems and then turn those customer problems into business, right? So um, that's the next thing I look for because then that person, even though they're in a school, already is already starting to think customer-backed versus business-backed, right? And then the third, the third final thing that I just started doing over the last two years was look for outcomes. Like, are they getting feedback from customers and making changes to their design in, in order to improve the outcome or having real outcomes to work? Meaning um, 10% increase in usage of this particular product or something like that. The and, and those are the three things I go through. And if they hit those three things, then I start really deeping, like deep diving into What's the merit of the idea? How are they showcasing it? And, and you're absolutely right. Everybody has the same process. Like there, to me, there's only one process in design. You think about something, you make something, you put it out in the world and people will tell you if they like it or not. And then you can maybe think about it again 
if you're a good designer, you will think about it again and you will make it again and you'll elicit feedback again. So, right. Well, you kind of touched on the aesthetic usability effect. Um, mm-hmm. If we're talking about portfolios, just to understand. And then the second thing is not addressing the what or, or the how, but addressing the why. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then the third thing is, is, is focusing on your customers or your users, which kind of brings me to a question I've been thinking about. So you, you have that of focusing on users and solving their problems, right? And that's the thing that gets me most passionate about this work is is trying to solve real problems, you know, quote, real problems. But also you have the business side. So how do, how do you balance the business needs and the user's needs? Yeah, it's a constant struggle. Like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in these meetings and sometimes because I believe it's the designer's job, to be the voice of the customer, um, I'll go heavy-handed with feedback. You know, I'll be like, "How how do you think I feel when you guys give me a five dollar increase per month? You know, it's sixty dollars. I'm a small business, blah blah blah, or whatever, or something something like that. Or you know, ha- ask different questions about how can we how can we do something different? Because a, a lot of times things exist and you, you have to make it work, right? Like you have to make it work from a business perspective, but you also have to make it work for value. And so if you're not delivering the value, it's going to be really hard to make the business part work. So the balance really comes down to asking, have we built enough value in order to charge for this thing? Did we solve the right problem in order to charge for this thing? And surprisingly, what people will find out is the answer is no. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of times. And, We're always wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, okay, we need this, this, and this. And what you realize is that you just created a workflow. You didn't really solve the problem. You just strung some stuff together, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the problem was actually between the seams of these three things that you built. And, um, you know, that's why at early stage startups, they don't care about cash. They just care about, you know, solving the problem. And you have to compete against that as a tech company, they call it the burning platform. How are you going to save yourself if your platform's burning and uh, there's, you're being attacked from all angles, from all, you know, from all sides, from every single industry, you know, like who would have thought that Google would be making cars, you know, or Amazon would create brick and mortar stores after bookstores, after taking out all the bookstores that were brick and mortar. Like it's just, you have to adapt and change with business and you have to balance uh, the value you bring with the price. A a lot of times, you know, I'm going to be honest. A lot of times it's, it's a tough, it's tough because, you know, design is inherently a service style discipline, right? Like we are serving a company we're serving customers. We're, you know, trying to, build the best thing that we can and time and money and all those things. I I think the balance is sometimes, sometimes you have to, (laughs) you have to stand up for something. And other times you have to understand if like, Hey, like they have the evidence to prove that people will pay X amount of dollars for this thing. Right. So, and sometimes you just have to swallow a pill and just be like, I'm going to move forward because you know enough, you know, Mm. It's it's a sad reality that we just can't design cool stuff, and uh, that helps people and make money from it. It's a, I, I think, design is at this weird inflection point right now where I feel like it's becoming too subservient again, and uh, we need to take back the reins and um, start pushing our companies and the companies that we consult. Uh, to solve the real problems for the customer and not just sell them things. And if we can continually do that and align ourselves with the companies that do that, then those companies are going to be extraordinarily more successful than the companies that aren't. And we know that to be true just based on, you know, evidence throughout the last decade of design driven companies outperform, you know, non-design driven companies. So um, yeah, it's, not, it's like said somewhere that uh, uh, design unicorns are like companies that are founded by designers uh, have like uh, like at least like above like a forty percent customer retention, like a higher <laughs> higher retention rates, higher conversion rates, higher customer yeah. satisfaction. Like, well, well, even companies like Intuit, Coca Cola, um, trying to think of some other ones, uh, Salesforce that are 
you know, like at Intuit, we teach all 9,000 employees design thinking. We are a design-centered company. And the companies that do that outperform like almost like 200% all their, all the other companies. So it's, it's, it's not just for the startups. It's also for these large companies that uh, are teaching design and empowering people to make decisions and fail fast and build things that matter for people. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, um, have you read the book, The Way to Design by Steve Asalo? No, no, but it sounds like I need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, check out the book. It's really great. But he, he kind of goes into that and in talking about how startups need to have a, what's called a design founder. Mm-hmm. So you should always have a design leader in your foundation. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. I think it also helps because um, design really is about constraints. And um, if we, like, if you're there with other, like the business and the, we'll say development, right? Because there's typically a triad of like somebody that's running the business, somebody that's getting it technically done, and then somebody that's designing the thing. Like that give and take can be massively um, beneficial because you can be driving the business within the constraints of the technology with a customer lens. And I think that's what creates uh, massively valuable um, work and work that can be done quickly because you'll know it's, you know, you can build it, you know, you can build it right. And you know, it's going to build value. And that kind of like touches base with understanding comics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, the, well, it's just the idea that once you get past idiom, you either focus on like mastering form or the ideas. Mm-hmm. And so yep. a company like a, usually like a product company, it, you're not going to be, maybe you will, maybe into it might make kiosks, but I don't see that mm-hmm. in the case there. It's more like web apps and stuff like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's pushing the limits of like what a web app can do, like questioning mm-hmm. how people use, have used the form of a web app in the past mm-hmm. um, to make like that obligatory tax season easier. Um, yep. I'm, I'm a very happy customer of uh, Intuit's like tax products, but I like how, what you said is that, um, it's about kind of pushing back, taking the reins and mm-hmm. questioning why we're making this software or, or why we're doing it a certain way. Like why, why do we have a native app when like customers are more comfortable with just doing it in their browser and stuff like yeah. that? Yeah. And, and it almost comes down to audience too. It's, it's funny that you, you mentioned that because I think a lot of the future state of design in these large companies is going to be physical and digital. Um, solving problems um solving problems just can't always be done with a screen right yeah it has totally to agree done, yeah it has to be done with people and um the, some of the mo- and assets that people have so like uber yeah for all software there's like <laughs> not yet at least i'm sure <laughs> but that's what i found really exciting about these this next generation of product designers is that i actually don't think that they're going to be constrained to just building something on a screen. I think the systems and the service design, like most people call it service design. Yeah. This, the systems that people are going to design are going to be extraordinarily complex and they're going to involve robotics and, you know, audio visual UI and um, just so many, so many parts and pieces it's it's going to be an exciting time to be somebody that's graduating now to see that happen and to see the genesis of their career through a lens of uh, anything truly is possible because the 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 problems that we're solving they have to be more than just a screen and pushing a button oh yeah so it's it's designing all the touch points it's like into it opening up like their own physical like tax prep locations or mm-hmm. something like that it's it's uh, understanding. Well, I mean, like you said it, um, like Amazon's opening up physical retail. And yep. like I, I was just in the Amazon store. We actually just visited the Amazon store in Soho. And mm-hmm. it was just such an interesting experience. And it was, it was yeah. kind of weird. Like we felt like they had all our data and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it was just really interesting and they had the kindle like uh, live ink technology for their price tags and mm-hmm. stuff it was super cool just to, just to be like in the physical version 
of this online store or like what we've known as an online store. It's, yeah. it's such it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's and and if you think about all the bits and pieces they have to have in order for that to work. And um, you know, I have some friends over at 7-Eleven and they're trying to crack the code too, you know, like um you know, pre-ordering before you get there and whatnot, because um, the the thing that Amazon has done is that they have designed very efficient systems <laughs> and they will continually do that because that's how Bezos loves to roll. And now they're getting better at the front end, right? Before, like, I remember going to Amazon, the store and just being like, this just looks so old and now it's starting to catch up. And I think they're, um, they're really changing the game and there's no, like, I don't know who's going to stop them personally. There's probably some guy in a garage right now, you know, (laughs) but um, it's a desire's world. And I hope that people continually believe that we're here to help people and connect all these systems that are currently not connected. We're the dot connectors. So how can we connect them all? Totally. Yeah. I think, I think it's a super exciting time to be a designer, you know, and, and just in my experience, being able to, to teach the importance <laughs> of design and, and design systems and thinking bigger and thinking beyond just screens. I, I love that idea. Yeah. I would try to tell any student that, you know, they should take, try their hand at that. One of the reasons that people like, so like, say you're in a car accident, do you really want to be talking to a chat bot? <laughs> you know, like, um, or it just doesn't make sense right there are just certain things that don't make sense because in that moment uh, i think john might have talked about this like in that moment you want a human you need that human and you know maybe there's a future where it sounds and feels like a human but even then i think that's disingenuous and people will not like it Especially when it's like common knowledge that you're talking to an AI. Yeah. Like I, uh, well, I mean, if you put like design and like ser- the design of services and products in the future this way, that, that there's going to be physical touch points, there's going to be human uh, factors. These people that say like, oh, wow, like technology is going to be taking jobs and robots are going to be taking your job. I, now I don't think that's the case. I mean, based off how you frame that argument, that it's going to create more jobs and they're going to be more fulfilling jobs because they're well designed. Well, yeah. I, well, there's two paths that I see happening. One is like, um, this is going to be the alarmist JB, by the way, but um, <laughs> there's the potential that we create this. So um, if you've ever been to a really, really nice hotel, like the service is like next level. You, you pay for that service, obviously, right? Yeah. And then, you know, um, if you go to just your run-of-the-mill hotel, you'll, you'll still get a smile and, like, helpfulness, but they're not going to, like, go above and beyond, right, because of the specific task at hand and the price point that you're at. It doesn't mean that they're not nice people. It doesn't mean anything like that. It just means that, like, they have a line of people. They're just trying to get you checked in so you can go up, right? And um, what I worry about is that that personal touch becomes a socioeconomic um, structure where it's like, oh, I can talk. uh, I make more money. Therefore, I can afford to actually meet with a doctor, not meet with a doctor on TV. Oh, jeez. Yeah, (laughs) or something like that. And um, and I, I see that happening with privacy as well. Like. Um, so those, that's JB being alarmist. I don't know if that'll necessarily occur, (laughs) but, but I start wondering about things that we've already done, like, um, that, that just naturally occur because of money, like, you know, staying at a, um, I don't know, staying at the Royal Mansour in, uh, Morocco is different than staying at the Marriott down the street from your house. It just is. There's going to be all these experiences that people will not have because they just don't have the cash. We already have that now. Now amplify that in a uh, economy that is driven by AI and robots and all those things. It it becomes a little scary. Yeah. Man. Yeah. (laughs) 
man, I'm alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't need to alarm because like these are the these are the problems that we can solve. Like, yeah. This is great. How, what are some ideas for maybe I don't know, phrase this of kind of s- slowing down and designing the right thing, making sure that that human element is there. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how can we be advocates for people? Well, I, I think like we're, we're going into this. Um, I can only speak from experience and things that I've observed. Right. So here at Intuit, if you look at TurboTax, you look at the stuff we're doing at here in PCG ProTax, there's a point where a, ma- a majority of accountants are going to, they spend 65% of their time inputting information, right? So with ML AI and direct data feeds, we should be able to eliminate that input pretty much, right? So all the financial data, I'll take a photo of your W-2, rips out the information, puts it in the, puts it into the um, return. The return is calculated just like in TurboTax on any any type of software, right? Whether you're using HR block or ours, mm-hmm. it's literally doing the job of calculation for you. Like it is, it is doing a job for you. And so, you know, I've already started and, you know, thinking about, you know, okay, in this world where a, a large majority of the prep is already completed, how do we protect jobs and these types of things for um, our accountants? And, and it's the accountant and the firm of the future are people that are pushing the service element, the human element to their work and letting all that other stuff be done. Those jobs that people don't really want to do input and collate mm-hmm. information and all that stuff. 65% of their time could be spent helping people avoid paying taxes or helping somebody's financial health or whatever it might be. Right. So now you've given them back 65% of their time to be service oriented. So, but you, but that's a long, like there's some people that just not going to survive like that change. And that happens with any change, whether it was like going from, I think we had like millions of horses and now we have like 17,000 horses, right? (laughs) Because we just quit using horses because we got cars. We took their jobs. Yeah. (laughs) Blacksmiths still exist, but they're not, you know, they're not like in high demand anymore. So, but now we have mechanics and now like mechanics are kind of, um, you know, being shifted and changed because now motors are in the wheels and not, you know, an engine and, you know, all those types of things. Anyways, and where I've seen other companies really try to push the human element is even Uber. Like Uber is really trying to do a 180 based on some of the challenges of the past. And I do believe their CEO is currently doing a really good job at this, but you go in the app and it's like, here's some facts about your driver. You know, this is how many rides they've done. Like one dude had like 17,000 rides. And I was just like, Whoa, that's a lot of rides to be giving people, you know, in three years or however many years it was. And it kind of puts that human element back into the space that you're just not using this person for their asset, their car. Right. Um, that being said, I don't know if it increases conversation or decreases conversation because you feel like you're connected to somebody without talking to them, but we need to keep the human at the center of these things and to help people realize what's coming down the pipe and prepare them and make sure that they understand that, you know, they'll have a role in that future. And I mean, we could go into like, you know, like West Virginia it's hard to know what the role of your job is. Like say you're a coal miner in West Virginia when that job is being taken away and there's no replacement. And so I think if we are creating automated systems as designers, we have a, I think we have a responsibility to try to help those people find what their next job is or use them in the system that we're designing to bring value to the system. Hmm. Hmm. So it's like creating, we're designing the alternative. We are freeing up your time. Therefore you have more time to do this yeah. extra, this higher level activity. Yeah. And, and like think if in finance, in finances, like a, an accountant, like taxes are required, not desired. Right. So like <laughs> you're in this, situa- <laughs> you're in this situation where you're, 
um, giving people like everything about you. Here's how much money I make. Here's my social security number. Here's my kids' names and their social security number. Uh, this is what I spent on healthcare this year. You know, like <laughs> that's ultra sensitive information. And a lot of times it's transactional, right? With, with a human element, it's transactional. So how can you make it so that that person is caring for you? And accountants, just from their very, very being, and it's, you know, like uh, working in accounting, which does not seem that sexy on the outs- outside, is actually very exciting on the inside because you have a group of people that absolutely care about their clients more than their clients even know. And now it's an opportunity to get to show that, to allow them to show how much they care. You know, like they're sitting there sweating about how can I save this person more money so that they can put more food on the table or get them the refund they deserve so that they can have a Christmas or a vacation that they want. And that's that's powerful when you talk to people. You just have to find out what motivates them. Yeah, super powerful stuff. I love it. Yeah. So how are we doing on time, Cam? I think... Yeah, I think we're, we've gone over a little bit, so yeah. maybe... Yeah, thanks, JV. Yeah, man, we this always kind of happens. We just keep on yeah. <laughs> going, but I, I love it. These are great yeah. conversations. Can, can, I, can I just say one last thing? If, yeah. To, to any young designer that is um, uh, listening to this or even mid-level designer, one of, the, one of the challenges of design in the future that I'm seeing, and I've, I've gotten observational feedback feedback about this and also peer feedback about this is that designers are really, really focused on craft. So you talked about like these six layers, right? And uh, uh, craft is like number five, I think. Yeah. Where it's like right down. There are a lot of people getting stuck at craft and they're worried about all these periphery things, which are important. But as you move up in your career, and you get older, <laughs> um, I, I am begging, imploring, wanting people to recognize that we need more leaders as we move forward. Because what I'm noticing is that design managers are, beca- are from disciplines that aren't designed now. And that, that's scary to me because we fought so hard to get a seat at the table. And now we're relinquishing that table for craft. And what we need is people to step up to be leaders and to recognize that I can help build better craft by teaching 10 people than by one person executing. Because if we don't, then there will not be designers at the table. It'll be people that have managed designers at the table. (laughs) So I just want people to recognize that being a manager and being a leader is super, super hard. But it is, it is also a benefit from the struggle that all designers previously had done to get us in a position to have managers and leaders and C-level executives. Um, and so we need, to, we need to uphold what everybody before us fought for and to drive the change and to become leaders ourselves versus letting someone else lead us. Cool. Do you mind if I ask you maybe just one last question? Sure. Um, you kind of, I mean, you touched it on there. You basically just laid down the law. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> any other qualities you look for in a designer, you know, sending that out to entry level and junior designers looking to get in? Yeah. I, so um, it's both from my own experience and from people I see that are high achievers is that um because just because it's not in scope doesn't mean that you didn't think about it. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is, um, you know, like I've, I've run into a, a lot of people that are like, well, that's just not what we would do at our company. We wouldn't test something. It would cost too much or whatever the excuse might be. Right. Um, and my, my feedback back to them is, well, it doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything on your lunch break to take a sketch and ask five people in the mall. And so my feedback is if you're designing something for someone and it's a class project to get it in front of real people and get real feedback from it. And if you do not have real feedback from it, then it's not really a design 
it's just what you think people are going to want. And you're not solving the problem. You're just solving what you think is the problem. And so that would be my, that would be my fourth point, I guess, for looking at uh, portfolios is, you know, get feedback, real feedback from your users. And there's no excuse not to find them. Cool. Yeah. Well, JB, thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah, This has been an awesome conversation. You guys are awesome. All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. Until next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.